Tell me when it's on. Good morning, good morning, good class. Hello and welcome. Today we push forward in the creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So that's the phrase we're adding today, creator of heaven and earth. Does everyone want to try the creed up to this point with me? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible begins with this iconic line and this iconic story, the creation of the world in seven days, and God rests, and it is good. Previously, especially during our first two weeks of class, we touched on this story a little bit, um, and I brought up a couple of the points I will be bringing up today in materials, but because I knew this juicy phrase was coming up in the creed, I thought, hey, let's put off a more robust discussion on this very important theme of creation in the Bible until the great words in the creed appear, creator of heaven and earth. So here we are today. Okay, so I saved it for you. Um, after all, the topic of creation is super fascinating on so many fronts, I think for a lot of us, um, for three reasons. I'll, I don't know if these are all the reasons, but here are three I thought of. Number one, um, it raises issues about whether we read the Bible historically or symbolically or literally or figur figuratively or in some other way for the creation stories as Christians or, or um, in general. Okay. So there's an interpretation question that we'll have a chance to touch on here. When you start reading the book, the Bible, how do you know what genre it is? The Bible has a genre of history, presumably in it at points. I mean, I presume that there are swaths of things that are historical reporting and old names and countries and rivers and things like that. Um, but it's a question of genre. Not everything is like that. So how do you know which things are like that and which things are not? Is it just, is it obvious? I'll, I'll I'll make a suggestion to that. No, it's not been obvious to, to, to many, many people, many readers of the Bible. So work has to be done to try to figure this question out. So that would be one reason that I think this is a fascinating topic. Number two, the topic evokes um, debates about the role of science for Christians. At least since science was a thing. Science wasn't always a thing. Science is an enlightenment, scientific revolution kind of invention. After the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, things get on a roll. Late 1800s, you have Charles Darwin's famous theory of evolution, which kind of kicked things into high gear, I think, for a lot of people of faith, because it seemed to be a challenge to certain reading strategies for some people and then not for others, and then on into the 20th century and today. And by the way, the question of science and religion is more than just evolution. It's been a big one for a lot of families and churches and people, but it, it's also about questions of how we use technology, how attention shapes our mind versus how prayer and other uh, avenues of faith shape our mind. It's also about bioethics, right? Issues of life support and euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide and the kind of whatever terminology we use for that. It could even be, I mean, this is kind of like weirdo stuff, but the question of science and religion could even be in our lifetime an issue about life on other planets or extraterrestrial life of some kind. Maybe if not even like big googly-eyed aliens, like just even discovering life on another planet, like even a single microbe or little speck of something that's alive like on Mars or another place or on, a, on an asteroid that comes into Earth would be a really big deal. And I think would cause serious questions about the scope of what we consider life to be on Earth, the scope of what Christians consider salvation to be and the incarnation of Jesus. Or alternatively, or maybe also, it could also be a a question about how human bodies interact with technology and whether technology becomes integrated with our brains, like our physical brains itself, 
um, whether things get implanted behind our eyes, and you know, kind of like a science fiction movie, and we see the world that way, and what a Christian response would be to the problem of how much machines should be integrated into our bodies, and then we're fighting the machines with guns, and there's a world war, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, those could be that. Those are things that people tell us are more or less on the horizon. So science is not just about the evolution thing. Although when we talk about the creation stories, obviously there's that. And then number three, I think it's also just because of the theological importance of origins, of knowing where we come from and what role our origins play for our purpose today. So for this week, I thought it'd be fun and effective to present the core of the material through a series of theses or major claims. And I'll, I'll put them out in a numbered list. I'll call these, uh, this list seven theses on thinking about the creation of the world as a Christian who cares about the Bible. That's not as catchy as I, it was when I wrote it uh, down, but, but here we go. Okay, so seven theses about creation in the Bible. Thesis number one, these are claims. These claims might actually, by the way, when, when someone makes claims in kind of the scientific or social scientific way of the lecture in the grand university tradition, the claims are precisely that, they're arguments. There should be evidence for the arguments and then people evaluate the evidence for the arguments and then they kind of move forward from there. So these claims or these theses are of that type, just to be clear, okay? This is not seven facts about creation Bible, it's seven claims, seven theses, okay? Thesis number one, claim number one. Creation is not primarily about the past. Creation is not primarily about the past in the, in the biblical vision. Rather, it's about the now. Creation's about the now, and furthermore, creation's about the future in the biblical vision. Creation's not primarily about the past in the biblical vision, it's about the now, and it's about the future. In the cultural moment that some of us as Christians find ourselves in, indeed since the aforementioned Charles Darwin's influential science in the 19th century, the issue of creation has exclusively, I think in the thinking of a lot of people, been about the past. Kind of the how and when and the techniques of creation, big bangs and you know, things like that. How did it happen? We weren't there, we couldn't observe it. Can we observe its after effects? What was it? It's so mysterious. And so the focus gets to be about the past, the past, the past, the past. But I have to tell you something. This is my claim. Okay. Um, it's not exclusively about the past. It's about the now and about the future. Because for this Friday's panel, we're going to be talking with some real live scientists. So excitement, let the excitement build. I'm going to mostly bracket technical questions about the way creation and science and the Bible interact. I'm not a specialist in this area, and I'm looking forward to Friday to having a better conversation about that. But in the biblical vision, here's how the math works out, I think. I'm not a good math person, but I would say, just for fun, just to dole it out, creation is maybe like 33% about the past, and it's like maybe 33% about the now, and it's maybe 33% about the future. In fact, I would even, I'll even amend that math as I speak. It sounds not quite right. I'll say... 30% about the past, I'm going to say 60%, eh, no, I'm going to say 50% about the now, and 20%. Does that all add up to 100? Yeah, 30 plus 20 plus 50. 20% about the future, okay? So in other words, in the biblical vision, creation is about life now, okay? What about that 20% though, creation being about the future? Let me do a huge plot spoiler. I'm going to skip way to the end of the Bible. If you have a Bible and you want to look with me, 
you turn through this whole book that we're, we're moving through. We're only about eh, 1 20th of the way through so far. We're gonna have to make up some ground somehow as we go, and we will. I'm gonna flip to the very last book. It's a book called Revelation. The book of Revelation ends with a stunning, soaring vision of God's victory over all that is chaotic and sinful and hard and bad in the world. Okay. Um, and I'm gonna read from the very last chapter of the last book of the Bible. This is literally how the book ends. Do any of you do this when you read a novel? You like flip to the last page and just read a couple sentences? I do that, okay. I'm not seeing any nodding. Perhaps I'm the weirdo, okay. Um, 22.1, then the angel showed me, this is a speaker, a human speaker who wrote the book. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Look, I'm coming soon. Now, this imagery maybe already starts to resonate in your mind. It reminds you of something you've already read, and if you read it again, it would remind you even more. Namely, Genesis chapters one through three, right? This idea of light being mentioned over and over again, what's the first thing that happens in Genesis one in the creation story? God says, let there be light, right? So this idea of light and God being a light to people is a callback right away to Genesis 1. This idea of, I mean, more obvious things, the tree of life, back from Genesis chapter 2, that's in the middle of the garden, and that God hides from the people eventually in chapter 3 when they go astray. The idea that the leaves and the fruit are being mentioned, there's a constant reference to trees bearing fruit and so on. And the idea of a curse being repealed, the idea that there being no more sin or death or darkness, so those are all like not accidental, like really direct intentional callbacks to this idea. This scene, this, this motif, this place where people are going, where this stuff is going to happen, is, is in the future. It's about a future event. It's about where you're going. This is why one of our panelists earlier, I think was in week two maybe, uh, might have been in the first week of the course, I can't actually remember, had said something like, look, you know, this was this idea of the happy accident in Genesis chapter three, the idea like, well, yes, Adam and Eve did a wrong thing, they shouldn't have done it, but they paved the way for us to see something even better. We're not trying as Christians, Christians are not trying to just like excavate back to the Garden of Eden. I always find this kind of odd, and this is just my personal take on it spiritually, when people are like, I wonder where the Garden of Eden is. Could we go there? Is it in like ancient Iraq or Israel? Like it could be like an Indiana Jones thing and you burst through a wall and then there it is, you know? It strikes me, it's fun, but it's also kind of infantile because it's not about going back there. You're not going back there. It's about a future state with Jesus. And that G G Jesus there, what the New Testament will call the second Adam, little, a little echo here to, to be a spoiler, is actually better than the first Adam. You don't want to be Adam and Eve you want to be you going toward Jesus in a place like this, right? So creation in that vision is, is very much about the future. It's not trying to excavate backwards to the past. It's history with a purpose, with an arrow leading in a direction toward another thing. Maybe this seems obvious, I don't know, but I think it's revolutionary. 
because we miss this focus on the future and we miss the imagery then as we read about creation stories, how it's not just about the past, it's also about the now, it's also about the future. A corollary to this, by the way, I might mention, in the book of Genesis, when we read all these like genealogies, did you remember reading genealogies of names of people? Super boring for uh, a lot of contemporary readers. But those genealogies, too, are, are, they function the same way. They're not about the past, like alone, just where people came from. They're also about who you are now, who you are now. I mean, why are people obsessed with this, like, what, what are these companies like 23andMe or the things where you spit in the tube and you get to see your DNA and then they tell you kind of like where little bits of your DNA are from in the world and whether you have this ancestry or that? Are people interested in that because they just want to know who their, whom their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother was or if they have any, you know, of this nation or this type of person in their blood? Maybe there's a little bit of just like antiquarian interest in that. I think a lot of the interests, for me at least, I think for a lot of people, it's about me now. It's about trying to find meaning in the now. It's about trying to tell my children this is where we came from and this is who we are going forward. You know? So too, genealogies in the Bible are not just about the past. They're not just like, here we have a good roll call of who the people's names are. Super boring. Okay? It's about who people became. So there are little, little bits of this. So for example, I'll just turn to, to one of these just to illuminate it a little bit in Genesis chapter. Genesis chapters five and 10 are really where these genealogies are. Um, I'll go to Genesis 10 because that has the more juicy examples. Okay. Um, there are some groups that are the sons of Shem, which is one of Noah's sons. They are the Shemites or the Semites, the Semitic peoples. This is, this is where Israel will come from. But then there are, are other branches, okay? And in particular, there's a branch of the sons of Ham, the sons of Ham. And there was this very odd event, which I think some people wanted to talk about at the end of Genesis 9, where um, Noah's sons see him naked, and then there's like some kind of awkwardness and shame, and that's Ham who sees him naked. And then Ham has a son named Canaan, and then Canaan is cursed because of this incident. It's, it's, it's very weird. Um, but when we look at the line, the lineage of Ham, this is in Genesis 10:6, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And then later when we see the sons of Cush, Nimrod, Akkad, Nineveh, and then Egypt, and then Canaan was the father of Sidon, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvadites, Zemorites, Hamathites, uh, Gerar, Gaza, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Now, if any of those names ring a bell to you, it's because it's a roll call of the enemies of Israel in the Bible are said to be the descendants of this shamed, degraded son of Noah. So what is this genealogy about? Is it just about where people were in the past? No, it's about a contemporary reality for Israel about their enemies, right? These people are placed or are read back into a primal moment of shame and degradation. It's about the now, okay? So I think this claim about creation being about the now and about the future is a deeply biblical concept. It's not something I'm just making up in the moment. Okay, thesis number two. The Bible's creation stories were originally written in an ancient world for ancient people. Thesis number two. The Bible's creation stories were originally written in an ancient world for ancient people. And... The implication would be that they're written with ancient imagery. Christians believe that God spoke to ancient people in a way that made sense to them, but with powerful imagery that still makes sense to us today. Now, here's a bizarre kind of paradox that we have to live with 
those who see the Bible as God's word, those who are Christians and who live in the tradition. On the one hand, the Bible is a living, active document for teaching and for preaching and inspired for these things. And on the other hand, it's situated in a past place that is not our place. Okay. Maybe sometimes we, we overstate the difference between us and ancient people. Were ancient people just a bunch of stupid like cavemen running around? No, they were pretty smart, you know? And they had the same kind of loves and fears and desires that we have. But there are some areas of life in which they were super different from us. This issue of like what they understood about the physical world and science is like maybe the top number one area in which they were really different from us, of all the areas. Probably not so different from us in terms of like, that person really annoys me, I wanna smack him in the face. Like they were like that too, okay. Um, I, you know, I wanna live here and I wanna make something of my life and I wanna be rich. They were like that too. In terms of like knowing how big the earth is and its shape and how fast it's hurtling through space and what exists at the far corners of the earth, that was not an, that was not an area in which they were like us at all. Okay. They, they just, there were things they just didn't know. There were things they couldn't have known. Um, so anyway, this paradox between the then and the now creates problems for us. Dr. Gupta, Nijay Gupta, you remember him sitting on the panel here? He had a suggestion about how we can deal with this generally. Do you remember his suggestion? He invoked a Greek term from the New Testament, the term teleos, which means something like perfect or complete suggesting that this, in brief, that this is a model by which we can see the Bible. He actually preferred this term more than a term like inspired or something like that for the Bible. That was his idea, that the Bible contains exactly the totality of what we need, okay? That's not an, that's not an, an indication of how it speaks at every individual point, but it's a statement of faith about its contents, its purpose, and its adequacy for us as people of faith, okay? In other words, it's, it's a theory of divine accommodation. God spoke to people then in ways that they could understand. And in some ways, it's kind of a tautology or it's obvious. Why would God speak to people in a way that they couldn't or didn't understand? That would be weird. It would be weird if God gave people riddles like 2,500 years ago and they, everyone was just like bamboozled forever and then suddenly today it's just revealed to us. That would be just as unfair in a sense to them as we feel it's unfair to us that you know, it was revealed that long ago in this kind of idiom, okay? So the accommodation concept is pretty simple. I think it's pretty satisfying on a number of levels. I don't think it solves every problem though. Um, but it's, it's obvious. Like God, here's, 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 a, here's another thesis within the thesis. God didn't reveal the Bible to people in languages that they couldn't speak. The Bible was revealed in languages to people in nations where they could speak the languages. I suppose God could have revealed scripture in some kind of heavenly language or in English or in something like that, but it wasn't. So there's a problem of particularity. Presumably God knew how to cure every illness and make safe, clean nuclear energy, you know? So why didn't he tell that to the Israelites? Tell it to the Israelites. Tell the Israelites how to cure cancer. Well, they, you know, there are problems here. I'm guessing there's some sense in which God was willing to let history and our development, even our moral development in some ways, let it take its, let it take its course and develop over a long time period. Some issues, though, are harder than others. And sometimes I read the Bible, you know, one of the students brought this up last Friday in the panel, like, you read some stuff and you're like, seriously, this is offensive. And I feel that way too. It's like, seriously, seriously, God, this was the accommodation you had to have for these people? This was it? Um, people in the ancient Near Eastern world generally thought things we don't think now. For example, they thought that the earth was flat, probably all of them. Don't get me started on this flat earther thing now in the contemporary world, okay? People thought that generally in the ancient world because they just didn't know. 
I mean, if you didn't know that the earth was a globe, how would you know that it wasn't flat? I mean, you look, at the, you look and it's just, there it is. I mean, come on. They didn't know that. In fact, they didn't know that the earth moved or spun at all. And there are statements in the Bible that make this very clear. Indeed, some authors make theological hay, make a point out of this idea that the earth is perfectly still, that it doesn't move in any way. So, for instance, I'm going to turn to Psalm 93, Psalm 93, 1. Just a couple of examples like this. The Lord reigns. The Psalms are a collection of songs and, and poetry. The Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established firm and secure. The language there in the translation I'm reading is not quite as literal as it could be. I mean, the language in Hebrew is more like, the world is immobile. The world is not moved. Psalm 104 has a similar statement about God's majesty and God's control over the created order, and then says, the world is set firm on its foundations. Psalm 104. So there's a theological statement there about God's control. God's meaning, God's engagement with the world. But we know that the world is actually not immovable. It's hurtling through space right now. We are traveling, I think, like what, like 30,000 miles an hour? Is that how fast it goes? It's something like that. That's disconcerting thought. You can see why people kind of flipped out a little bit during the, you know, during the scientific revolutions and why the Christian church at the time, at least many parts of it, were slow to recognize ideas like that the earth revolved around the sun and not the other way around. Because it's scary, Okay, it's actually scary. It's scary to think that we're on this thing that's moving. And maybe we're just so used to it that it doesn't seem scary anymore. But an upheaval like that, thinking you were on something that was standing still versus not, is a pretty big change. Okay? The earth does move all over the place, even if in predictable patterns. There were things, by the way, that they just didn't know at all. Like, do you think that ancient people knew what, like, do you ever think this at night? You, like, go camping or something, and you look up at the moon, and you're like, if I was an ancient person, what would I think the moon was, right? Or any of those like lights in the sky? Like, what would you think that they were? Would you just be like, and how far away would you think that they were? Would you think that if you jumped up really high or you were on a tall mountain, you could maybe grab one? Or, you know, these were things that ancient people just didn't know. And then we did know when people landed on the moon and we landed a rover on Mars and we could take samples and do things like that. So all of this to say, ancient people weren't dumb, but we might want to ask this question, What would God have chosen to reveal to Israel in the Bible, or how would God speak to them if God were revealing the Bible in the year 2019? Which leads to another point. We now do not, I presume, live at the pinnacle of all that civilization could be in the future. Any scientist, I think any scientist would tell you that in a hundred years or in a thousand years, our science and our way of viewing the cosmos is going to be really different. That seems like a good thing. That's That's exciting. It's not a reason to reject all science. Um, and the progress that we've made, but it's kind of a humbling point, don't you think? I think it is. Which leads to thesis number three. Other ancient people groups had creation stories with features that are sometimes similar to and sometimes different from the Bible's creation story. Other ancient people groups had creation stories. I want to give you two of these just to kind of put in your pocket, to kind of memorize by way of just being an intelligent young person. If someone's like, hey, the Bible has creation stories, I know, but were there other creation stories in that ancient world? Yeah, here, let me, and you could be like, yeah, let me tell you two of them, okay? I mentioned one of these before, the Enuma Elish. And then also I'm gonna add an Egyptian story, the so-called Memphite theology. 
These are modern titles, at least Memphite theology is. Okay. We don't know exactly when each of these were written, but we know that they're pretty old. Let's start with the Memphite theology first. This is from Egypt. It was maybe written sometime around 1300 BC, maybe 1100, maybe sometime in that zone. This was a period of great power in Egypt, a time when Egyptian rulers like Ramses I and this other guy named Merneptah, these are just historical names for fun here, um, were basically running around ruling all over all kinds of people. And this Memphite theology was apparently a creation story that was really popular in their time. It has some features, actually, that are really fascinating for readers of the Bible. So um, there's this deity named Ptah, and he's kind of like the creator deity, the craftsman, he's called, at the beginning of the story. He creates all kinds of things, things like other gods. For example, this is a polytheistic system. There are many deities. Okay. That's a P, by the way. I don't know why I wrote it like that. Okay. Ptah. Um, he creates other deities. He creates all gods, all thoughts, all possibilities. He creates, his method of creation, by the way, is by speech. He creates by speaking. He creates male and female at one point early in the story. And he rests, he has a rest after creation is done. Now, quick review, like, are there any features here that you can hear that are different from the Bible story? How about polytheism, the creation of many different deities, gods creating other gods? And there's a lot of like, stuff that I think if you read the Memphite theology, and you can if you just Google it, you can find it online, would, would sound very foreign to our ears now because it wasn't written for us, it was written for them. But there are other things that we can hear echoes of, right? Like this idea of arrest after creation, the male-female, although the male-female thing is pretty generic, like we just see that kind of in the created order for animals for the most part. Um, but also the idea of creation by speech, but he doesn't just create by speech, he also creates by thinking some things. Okay. It's a peaceful story for the most part. There's no war in the Memphite theology. Now, this contrasted to the Enuma Elish, the Enuma Elish was written probably, possibly even around the same time period, maybe around 1000 BC if you were just to have a round number in your head. The Enuma Elish is very violent. There's a deity named Tiamat, who's kind of like a water monster lady, representative of the saltwater sea. In fact, in the Akkadian language of the Enuma Elish, the word Tiamat or Tiamtu actually just means saltwater, like the saltwater ocean. That's what her name is. So she is ocean. Oceanic, and she has a fight against this guy named Marduk, who's sort of a hip young god with a bow and arrow, you know, prancing around saying, I will defeat all that is evil, I will restore order to the cosmos. He does defeat her, and it's super gruesome. Like, it's a gross story. He kind of, like, stabs her with an arrow, and then he, like, splits her guts open, and then he takes her carcass and cuts it apart, and kind of takes, like, half of her body and crafts out of it a kind of a sky, and then he takes the other half of her body and he kind of lays it down and he makes this the earth. So you have the creation of earth and sky, kind of like a globe. I mean, this structure right here that I'm drawing on the board, something kind of like the cross-section of a snow globe, is the basic ancient cosmology. This is basically how ancient people thought the world was shaped, kind of like a snow globe. It had a basically flat surface. It has pillars maybe on the side. There's a lot of this pillar language in the Bible, by the way, the idea that there are these pillars on the edge of the earth. And then there's a solid kind of layer Book of Genesis calls this the rakia, a kind of solid dome-like thing. 
and that's the world. So you can see how the Enuma Elish has taken a basic cosmology of a world shape and made it very kind of personal and bloody and gory in terms of the shape of the body of this defeated goddess. People are created later in this story, kind of as an afterthought and a punishment against Tiamat to become slaves, to work and do things that the gods don't want to do. This story seems to have less in common with Genesis chapter 1, for example. A lot less in common. This idea of violence, I mean, the, Genesis 1 seems almost crafted as an antithetical kind of statement to violence and to the uh, very idea that creation would take a lot of effort for God. So, um, when you, when you, if you read a story like the Enum Elish, it's really long too. I summarized it really briefly here, but it's actually kind of long. It would take you a while to read it if you were just to sit down and read it. And creation is the result of a struggle. If you read Genesis 1, I mean, you could read Genesis 1 in three minutes. God does confront something in Genesis 1, some kind of saltwater ocean body that's called, um, in Hebrew, tahom. This, this watery stuff is called tahom in Hebrew, saltwater, which in some ways in the Semitic languages looks a lot like the word Tiamat. And the reason that it looks like the word Tiamat is because it is basically the same Semitic word. It was just a basic Semitic word for saltwater. Some scholars have looked at this and said, ah, is Genesis chapter one actually some kind of intentional engagement with this kind of idea? Maybe not exactly like the Enuma Elish, but something like it, where the idea that salt water represents a monstrous threat, which God has to confront. He comes and he sees the darkness over the face of the Tahom, the waters, the salt waters, and you're ready. I mean, if you're hearing Genesis one for the first time and you're an ancient person, you're like, oh wow, that was fast. The God is already confronting the waters all right, let's have a battle, let's do this. And then Genesis 1 goes on in a stunning line to say, and God said, let there be light. In Hebrew, it's just a really, it's like one word, it's just one quick little phrase in Hebrew, yehi or, why don't you say it, I'll say it, then you say it, yehi or, let there be light. And then the narrator says, vaihi or, vaihi or, and there was light. Ta-da! Like, what a battle, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's almost comically short if you think of it compared with a story like the Enuma Elish. You maybe are vaguely prepared for there to be some conflict, but it's not there. One, you might not think of reading Genesis 1 as satire or as polemical, as speech that's meant to kind of like be a kind of clapback against another group's creation story, but Genesis 1 might be read at least partially in this way a group that has a story that's very different from another kind of group, showing the supremacy of their God over the forces of nature, not having to go through an ordeal like Marduk does. So these stories existed. Some of them are really different. Some of them have elements that are the same. It's not as though Genesis 1 comes out of a complete void and just interacts with no other creation story or idea that existed during its time. It's not true. I mean, we can see some of these kinds of, of things. Rest after creation, the male and female creation by speech, and then who knows, maybe this kind of like faint echo of the creation battle story subverted in Genesis chapter one. Thesis number four, creation stories are often about things other than creation, just considered on its own right. I'll be very fast with this one. The Enuma Elish, for example, was not just about creation in the abstract, but rather was about the deity Marduk and the city of Babylon becoming preeminent at a particular point in Mesopotamia's history. So around the year, maybe 1800 BC, maybe the year 1300, scholars will debate this forever, this new story became kind of like the official story of Babylon's primary deity, Marduk, coming to 
divine rule over the cosmos, which corresponds to a human ruler, maybe someone like Hammurabi or Nebuchadnezzar I. You don't need to memorize these names, okay? I'm just showing off. Um, becoming a kind of corollary to that ruler taking power. So do you see how that happens? The, the, the deity does it on the cosmic level. The human does it on the human level. They go together. In the Egyptian story, this time period in which the Memphite theology became popular was one where Egyptian rulers were struggling to make their nation a unified singular place. So what better way to do it than to have a creation story that can kind of galvanize people around the cosmic origins of the land? Raises fascinating questions which we can't address today. Maybe we can kick them on to Friday. Did the Bible story have a kind of political or real world historical origin? At what time did people begin telling Genesis 1 the way that they did? How did Genesis 1 even get into writing, by the way? And when was it put down by whom? These are fascinating questions that are a little bit beyond us right now, but I raise them because these creation stories often have themes that are other than just abstract creation, okay? Thesis number five. The Bible has multiple creation stories. I've saved this stunner for near the end, okay? The Bible actually has multiple creation stories. Genesis 1 is just the first of many, I would even I would go so far as to say dozens or hundreds of creation moments. Genesis 1 could be the most important for us. It's certainly the most iconic. It certainly does occur first. But, you know, it's like that old debate from second grade. Is first the worst or is first the best, right? Like, which one is it, okay? It's hard to say. It's hard to say just because it's first that it's somehow the best or the only one. It's not. What are these other stories? Oh, gosh, I wish we had so much time. They're all over the place. I'll give you a clue. The book of Psalms and the book of Job, these are two books that we'll study a little bit later in the course. Psalms and Job actually have more creation imagery in them alone than all of the rest of the Bible combined. Certainly way more than Genesis. Psalms is just full of creation imagery. If you love creation, read the Psalms. It's everywhere. The book of Job is full of creation imagery. Why? What is the book of Job? We'll get to that later. I'm just telling you that it's there, okay? <laughs> uh, the prophet Isaiah is full of creation imagery, especially after chapter 40. What about these other stories? Are they different from Genesis 1 or are they similar to it? Both. Some stories, like, like the one you'd find in Psalm 104, is very Genesis 1-like. It's very calm. It's very peaceful. God lays it out. It's not identical to Genesis 1, but it's congruent with it. However, let me read you a little bit of a creation story that's not like Genesis 1 at all. It occurs in Psalm 74. Oh God, the psalmist says, the speaker, why have you rejected us? This author's speaking from a place of pain from a current reality which for him was not good. We'll get to that, what that reality is later in the course. But for now, it's a reality in which the Israelites do get their land. Remember the covenant landing kids? They get it, but it goes very badly. Warning, foreshadowing, it goes badly, okay? And this is the speaker speaking from a perspective after it's gone badly. We are given no signs from God, this is verse nine. No prophets are left, and none of us knows how long this will be. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. This guy's getting passionate here, okay? But God, my king, is from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you, O oh God, who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams and dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours and also the night. You established the sun and the moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer 
and winter. Now, do you hear the language there at the end about establishing sun, moon, summer, winter, boundaries of the earth? It's kind of like this kind of stuff. It's very creation-y, right? But wait a minute. What was the role of that creation vis-a-vis some of that other language at the start? It sounded a little bit violent. Sounded like some monster heads were being crushed, right? Sounded like some leviathans were getting beat up. It sounds like rivers were being like dried up, like as though a giant fire came and licked up a river or something like that. Sounds like the sea was being defeated. It sounds in a lot of ways more like this story, more like the Enuma Elish than it does like Genesis 1. This is, I presume, from the Psalms and also from the book of Job, chapter 26, also from Isaiah, chapter 27 and 51, and from about 10 other places in the Bible where this same kind of imagery appears, that this was a legitimate creation motif in ancient Israel. It was a story that could be used and was meaningful at particular times for particular people. So the Bible doesn't just have one creation story. If you love creation, don't worry. It's all over the place, and you get even some creation imagery that's really different from Genesis 1 and allows a different peek at this. Not only that, the Bible has some bizarre, like, secret creation stories for the truly discerning. Um, Proverbs 8, for example, has creation imagery all over it and speaks of a secret creation of wisdom at the foundation of the world. And then, even in the New Testament, the book of John chapter 1 has yet another little secret creation story in it, namely the idea that something that's called the uh, the word of the logos became flesh, and that in the beginning was this logos, and and there's all this like bizarre philosophical language about creation. So not just Genesis 1. Thesis number six and thesis number seven. Oh my gosh, these are so good. I'm gonna give these to you and then we're gonna roll right into our reaction paper and then we're gonna continue talking about them on Friday. I think that's the best way to do this, okay? So thesis number six, just briefly. From as early as we can get back into the history of Christian thought, there was a debate about whether to interpret Genesis 1 literally or figuratively. So as far back as you can get into Christian history, reading their writings and reading people writing about Genesis 1, you can go back to the second century, authors like Origen of Alexandria and Augustine of Hippo in the fourth and fifth century. What you will find there is not a single voice about how to interpret Genesis 1 as either symbolic of something or as literal history. Rather, you will find Christian authors lining up on both sides. And you'll find some very powerful voices, like the two I just mentioned, by the way, Origen and Augustine, saying, don't, don't interpret Genesis 1 like literal history. They say, don't do it. In fact, Origen is really mean about it. Origen's kind of the meanest. He says, he actually says in one of his books, you're a fool if you interpret Genesis 1 through 11 or anything like that, literally. He says, you're crazy. Get real. Augustine was a little more circumspect about it, but he said, look, come on. Um, He didn't call anybody names. Others lined up on the other side, okay? So we have this debate already from, this wasn't invented like at the time of Charles Darwin or in the 20th century. It wasn't invented by your grandpa at the Thanksgiving table, ranting on and on. Like, this, was inv- this was something that goes back in Christian history pretty far. And then finally, thesis seven, maybe queuing us up for hearing from some scientists in our panel. Regarding science and creation, if this is something that you care about, maybe you're hearing all this and you're like, I don't care about this, <laughs> okay? But if this is something that you care about, you would actually need to do some serious reading And if you care about faith and science, you'd need to do some serious scientific work from a number of perspectives, not merely reading or hearing things that make you feel good about your current views in order to get traction on this. This is something you care about. You might need to do some serious work as an adult in order to figure out what's right and what's true and what's real. It might not just come to you in a dream, okay? 
that comes to you in a dream, all the better. But you might have to work it out. It might take time, and it might be difficult. Okay. Gosh, so much more to talk about here. Luckily, we have our Friday panel. Why don't you get out a sheet of paper?